and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host, Nikki Lee, and I have got an interesting guest today. His name is Ernest Green, and he's written a book called The Master of O. We're going to get into some very interesting information, and you've probably heard of a book called The Story of O. That's going to come up in this discussion. You're going to see how that fits into everything. I normally read a regular prepared bio, but I was reading over the notes that, that Ernest sent to me. I really liked his answer when I said, how do you describe what you do and how you help people? And I want to, I want to share that as an introduction. He says, I use my abilities with language and visual communication to raise challenging questions about what excites people sexually, why it does so, and how they can be integrated into a stable, healthy, and ethical life with or without a partner or partners. My job is to aid in exploration of those aspects of human sexuality that are most misunderstood and stigmatized. That is awesome. I love that. So, Ernest, well, thank it you. is awesome to have you with me today. Well, it's awesome to be here today. I'm really delighted. Thanks for the opportunity. Like I said, I, just, I read that and I went, that's my introduction. <laughs> that's it. Well, there so you go. You. So what, what do you think are, are some of the aspects of sexuality that, that are just misunderstood? I mean, there, there are so many things about sex I think people just don't understand. But are there a couple in particular that relate to the other things we're going to talk about today as far as the book? Well, I think there's a, a great misunderstanding about kinds of sexuality that may differ from whatever it is that is the preference of the, uh, of the viewer or the uh, reader, but that does not necessarily carry with it any value judgment. Um, essentially, it is a matter of whether or not they can see through the eyes of the people involved and understand that there is a terrific variety out there. There's a whole rainbow spectrum of behavioral options and relationship options and so on and so forth. And obviously, most of them are going to be wrong for any given individual, but there's probably one that's going to be just right for any given individual. That's true. And, and the thing is, if, if people don't ask questions and learn about new things, they're, they're going to settle into a rut, and they're just not going to realize there are other options. You know, it may not be the whatever's expected to be, quote-unquote, the norm for each individual person. But the thing is, it seems like with sexuality, we should embrace our sexuality, and it should be something that brings you know, enjoyment, <laughs> enjoyment in our lives, you know. So, Absolutely. And, and like I said, if, if whatever you're doing now isn't satisfying you and or your partner, there are other options, you know, so... so open the mind a little bit, you know, come out of the box a little bit. I'm, I'm very much an out-of-the-box kind of person. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> Me too. My, my, well, my initial thing is that just due to the fact that I'm 6'1", I don't fit in the box. <laughs> you know, so. Well, yeah, <laughs> at, at, at uh, 62, I'd have to agree that, uh, you know, it's hard to find a <laughs> uh, comfortable fitting box. Exactly. The legs are too long to fit in the box, so it's time to get out of the box. That's just all there is to it. Well, I've, I've been out of that particular box for a great many years, you know, <laughs> long before a lot of other people started doing that, and uh, it's been very rewarding for me. I mean, I, can't necess I would not necessarily recommend the you know, in intensive path that I've followed in this particular search, which had a lot to do with self-discovery. Um, but for me, it's been enormously rewarding, and I think uh, everybody can find a level of exploration that works for them. Right. 
Well, self-discovery is an interesting thing to bring up, too, because I think so many people don't really know or understand their self. And I know that probably sounds really strange to a lot of people, but you know what I'm trying to say? It's like so many people don't really take the time to be introspective and to look inside. They they just kind of go with the flow or go with what, you know, their their family and friends expect them to be, and they don't take the time to say, you know, who am I? Who am I really? And if they find something in there also that uh, falls outside the parameters of what's considered to be the regular way of thinking about sex, sometimes they'll recoil from that and they'll try and bury it and they'll go, no, 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 that's not really me. But actually, it's all you. It's all in there. (laughs) Well, that's just like I've always said that, that... whether it's the good things we experience in life or the bad things we experience in life, all of those things are part of us and all part of what got us to where we are right this minute today. You know, So all of it is a part of us, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or, or something we expected or whatever. It's all part of what makes up us, and we have to accept and love all those things about ourselves. doesn't right. mean we don't all need to make changes from time to time, but you know, at least accept yourself the way you are and then figure out Absolutely. where you need to go from there. Well, in a sense, the, the the book I have out now, which, by the way, is Master of O as opposed to The Master of O, because if you Google The Master of O, you're going to get a bunch of personal ads. Um, <laughs> but if you Google Master of O, you'll probably get this book. Um, anyway, uh, this book is uh, was really, in some sense, though it took me a year to write, it was about 30 years in the writing. It was, 20, it was, it was 29 years in the thinking and about a year of, of transcription. I understand that. So tell me what, I I interview a lot of people that are involved in some way in um, the the field of love, relationships, and sex. And you do Mm -hmm. definitely fall within that with a lot of things. So what what prompted you to be involved in that that field of work? Uh, You know, it was one of those kinds of things where it just happened. I mean, I know that's not a very satisfying explanation, but I just, I, I had had, a uh, number of uh, already uh, very interesting and uh, you know very promising uh, writing jobs. I started out to be a writer, and I started very early. I had an early first publication, I had the curse of early success, and uh, it's hard to overcome. And uh, I could have written about all kinds of other things, but at some point I really discovered that this was my subject. And, you know, I think only your authentic self can succeed. If you don't do the work on the, uh, about the thing that you care about, that you won't bring the passion to it necessary to sustain you through the long and arduous process of transmitting thoughts to the page. So it was, uh, it was a natural evolution of things. I've been writing since I was very young, and when I started thinking about this particular thing, uh, well, it's, you know, once you start thinking about sex, it's uh, not an easy thing to give up. <laughs> it's true, too. It's a fascinating, endlessly variable subject. I mean, there's a lot to say about it. And then I discovered fairly early that I had a particular, I won't, I won't call it a message. I agree with Lewis B. Meyer if you want to send, if you've got a message, send a telegram. It wasn't so much a message as a way of seeing. And that, uh, because, you know, when you've seen the world through a slightly different set of eyes than most people have, sometimes you see things that they don't see. That's true. So I really wanted to, to, to bring that offbeat vision to this subject. And there's such, there's such a need. I mean, when I first discovered about myself that I was in some ways different from other people, I started looking around and wondering who might be like me. And, of course, back 30 years ago, you really wouldn't have known because everybody was in the closet about something. 
so you could only conjecture and, and meeting like-minded people was a much more complex process. <laughs> now, if anything, the, the barrier to that is, is, is so low, sometimes it's too low. I say that about a lot of things. <laughs> yep. Now, I'm very big into a person being qualified for what they're doing. And, and if I'm reading a book, whether it's a novel or, or nonfiction, and it's about a topic that I don't know much about, but I, I always want to learn more about stuff. So I, what I like to do is I like to find people that are writing about a topic that I can learn more about and that they're really qualified and have the background and the actual knowledge to write from an informed, educated position. So what qualifications do you bring that make you qualified to write Master of O? Well, of course, uh, there, uh, I, I will say that there was some actual research, especially at the beginning, involved in finding out about what BDSM was all about and what uh, DS play was all about and what power exchange relationships were all about. Um, I read the literature of the time. I read things that had been written about it. I did some homework, but it's mostly been field work. From about the time I got out on my own, which was in my late teens onward, I've uh, explored a succession of uh, probabilities and possibilities with a variety of partners and uh, learned firsthand, which is really, uh, that was, this was even more true then. The only way you really know anything about BDSM is to either watch it closely in real life or be involved in it yourself. You have to have some direct contact with it. I have my, I have my issues with the explosion of online interest in, in BDSM because it's quintessentially a thing that happens between two people in an intimate setting, and I don't think you can really get that online. So I think some, some unfortunate things result from people thinking they know each other and know this about each other and know that they're well-attuned based on some words they put up on the screen rather than actually meeting face-to-face to see if there's any chemistry and if they get along in any other way. So I kind of, you know, old-fashioned as I am, I think personal contact and personal experience are the way that we learn the best. That's it. Well, and the thing is, you're, you're just taking that leap of faith that what the person is putting on the screen is true. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I don't yeah. take that leap of faith. Actually, no, I no, stand no, on the no. precipice and look carefully with the binoculars before I go very far. <laughs> I'm like, well, this is a starting point, but let's make sure you're where I think you are. You know? Yeah, <laughs> because of course, as we all know, online you can be anybody, but in real life you can only be you. That's it. Well, I, I did an experiment that I made up a complete fictional. Cre- creation, which actually has turned into one of my pen names now, but I just I just made her up out of thin air, you know. And I started a, a page on Facebook, and and she's she's got five thousand friends. You know? so, there you go. Yeah, well, there you go. That I, I consider Ernest Green in some ways my first creation. <laughs> That's it. That that was not the name I was given at birth, but uh, he has a life of his own, and he has you know his his uh, admirers and detractors and has uh, gone out there in the world and done the work for me. That's, that's what I say about Nikki because that's, that's my primary pen name that I use. And, and I tell people, I, say, I made her up. She's taken over my world, but I made her up, you know. <clears throat> that's okay. All right, you know, it, it's all good. And it, and it just shows, I think it shows great creativity and <laughs> great promotional skills. So I'm, I'm good with both of those. Okay. So for the people who haven't, um, haven't heard of or read the story of O. Um, uh, 
it is told from the female perspective and the submiss- submissive perspective. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what it was that in, enticed you about the story of O, because you've not only written Master of O, but you've also done three movies that were based on various elements of, of the O characters. So what, what was it that got you interested in, in that book to start with? Well, if there is a, what I would call an Ur novel about what we think of as contemporary you know, power exchange, sexual relationships, Story of O was it. And when it, it came out in 1954, uh, there really had not been anything written quite like it ever. I'm not surprised it caused the sensation and the controversy that it did because it, it took a fairly unflinching look at, from an outsider's perspective, how DS, master-slave, BDSM relationships look. And it's, it's, it's very well written, not surprisingly, by a member of the French Academy with excellent literary credentials. It's, it's an extremely well-constructed small book. But it leaves out a great deal, not just because it's told from the perspective of one person and not just because it's told from the perspective of a submissive partner in a power exchange relationship, but also because it doesn't tell us, it it is so subjective in terms of focusing on the experience of the woman who is the object of a, a, a love triangle, if you will, between two brothers who are all who are both inclined toward this particular kind of sexuality, that we really don't get much of a sense of what they're about, and therefore we don't get much of a sense of why she would make such a total commitment, because O in the original book commits herself very completely to being the romantic slave of first one man and then his older half-brother to whom she's given. Um, And we really, you know, it's, it's wonderfully in the moment from where she is but the guys are sort of cardboard cutouts. We really don't know anything about them. And that, unfortunately, became sort of a template for, for BDSM-oriented, kink-oriented fiction from then on. I can understand why, in many ways, uh, you know, this, the submissive situation seems to be more dramatic because that's the person upon whom things are, are, are done and, to, and in whose life the biggest, most dramatic events seem to be occurring. But those big dramatic events are also occurring in the lives of those she shares that relationship with who are in the dominant role. And we don't hear from them. We have not heard that voice. That is a voice that has not been heard, mostly because I, I, I think they don't know quite how to talk about it, and I think they're reticent about talking about it. And I felt that there was, and as a result of that, you know, in that silence, all kinds of misconceptions can grow up. And, in fact, that's part of the reason that that particular role tends to be stigmatized, the object of certain stereotypes, um, certain assumptions are made because of it. Uh, and I really thought it was, uh, it, was, it was time that we heard from that side. I mean, I'm, I'm real big on, on understanding why people or characters do certain things, what motivates them, and all this sort of thing. And and especially with this sort of a, a relationship, if if you don't understand anything about the other person, and it's hard, I think it's like near impossible to figure out like why she would agree to certain things, why she finds pleasure in certain ways, if you know nothing about the other person involved or the other people in this case involved. But I, well, I like be- the fact that you're you're taking this this basically unknown character who showed up in other books because this 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 man. As, as the dominant male has showed up in other books, but, but nobody oh, really yeah. has any idea. So you're pulling no, back the curtain I, you know, and pulling him out of the box, right? 
Right. It was time. It, it's really time for that to happen, in particular because, as I said, there's a great misunderstanding uh, based on, I'm afraid, you know, perceptions that were largely fictional and made at a distance starting very early about what being a dominant man or woman really is all about, because it's not about the things that I think it's commonly supposed to be about. And, uh, you know, a BDSM relationship is a relationship first. So that means two people, at least. I'm not limiting it. It could be more than two people, but you have to have at least two people who are emotionally engaged. And what I, I found in the original book was, uh, you know, because of the immediacy of the narrative, I found it easy to engage with the character of O. But as for these other fellows, I just couldn't see what it was about them that made them so special that she'd want to do all that for them. Exactly. And I, I, I'd say that uh, you would find if you there is there is no such thing as a typical person of any kind, and there certainly is no such thing as a, a typical person in the rather uh, zany and variegated world of uh, you know of, of kink life. Um, they're all different. We're all different, and uh, in fact, even a certain shared interests won't guarantee a successful relationship unless the other elements are there. So we need to get to know something about the inner lives of both of both sides of that equation before we can really go forward with it in a way that, that has a, an optimistic future. True. Very true. Well, that's, that's true of any relationship, whether whether it's uh, in, in the kink community or, or whether it's in, in the more vanilla community. I mean, there, there's got to be more. Just, just like people who think there's an instant attraction and immediate lust, that's going to make a great relationship. You just need so much more than that, you know? Oh, yes, you do. I mean, I, I, I argue all along that uh, really... It's a question of, of the person, not the thing. And, of course, with BDSM, because it involves a lot of things and a lot of activity, it's easy to become, in some sense, you know, beguiled by that and not really see the person with whom you're doing these things, particularly if, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the sexuality itself is very intense and can be tremendously satisfying. And if you have that with a partner, which is not always easy to find under any circumstances, especially when it's something particularly defined in this way, there's a tendency to see that as evidence that otherwise everything is just right. And that can be just wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I've had some really sensational, passionate, wonderful relationships with women who were interested in the same things I was interested in and shared that orientation very strongly. But, you know, you don't spend your whole life in the bedroom. That's true. Does, you know, sooner or later, conver be conversation becomes necessary, and uh, that's oftentimes <laughs> where these things tend to fall apart. So as I tell newcomers, I say, well, look, it, it'll be great if you find a good play partner and great if you find a good friend who's a play partner and really a bonus if you find a mate who's a good play, play partner. But you can't. none of these things are assured. It's going to depend a lot on your own judgment. That's true. And your honesty with one another. Absolutely. Now, I don't know of any other book that goes into – sadomasochistic sex in so much detail. And I'm going to say, even even on the very first pages of Chapter 1, the detail is great that you give. And and not only the, the detail of the surrounding, of the people, of of the setting, and, and I really enjoyed the, the minute detail that you include about her O's actions. And I mean, her whether it's keeping the eyes down, whether it's, it's standing back and letting 
letting Stephen order for her, or the interactions between Stephen and Ray. There's so many little interesting details. I'm actually reading much slower than normal, just so I make sure I pick up the details. But do you think that, that the authenticity and the detail that you're bringing and giving in the book, do you think that's going to help people to see the, the situation in a different way? I certainly hope so. You know, one of the interesting things about, uh, about this kind of sexuality is that, as uh, Brendan Gill once say, said of a play, didn't much like, that it's, it's easier to deplore than to describe. Um, sure. I don't think, what, what I don't think we've seen very much is what happens exactly when people go into that room and close the door and get down to doing what they do, then the language tends to become very elliptical and cryptic, and they really don't talk about it in a, in a sort of direct kind of rationalist repertorial way. And as a result of that, the appeal of it is hard to understand. It's hard to understand if you simply view it as somebody ties somebody up and you know, whips them a little bit, and then I don't know what happens. They go home and take a cold shower. Well, that's not reality. It is, a, it is a form of sexual expression. It is a very intimate form of sexual expression in that it involves not only a certain measure of physical vulnerability for the submissive part, partner, it is, involves emotional vulnerability for both partners in that they are exposing something about themselves that, that goes very deep and that might to an outsider be hard to understand, but it's less hard to understand when you, when you come to realize that the techniques that are involved can produce tremendous volcanic, orgasmic sexual experiences. That's why we keep doing it. That's the secret. That's the well-kept secret. It's fun. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you, you just said the, the volcanic sexual reaction because the, the next thing I wanted to ask you is, so, <laughs> so what could you tell to people that are, are not kink-oriented people that they would find interesting? I think that would be one thing they would find very interesting. <laughs> what, what are some other things that, that you think they may find interesting? And, and the funny thing is, as, as you're explaining the various things, I'm just thinking there's, there's so many ways that the elements – between the individuals, you know, between in the relationship that develops and the trust and the, the vulnerability and, and making your and the surrender and all of these things are things that every relationship needs, but it's taken to a level, it seems from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, um, taking it to a level that, that a lot of couples may never experience or think they need to experience in just a, a regular well, quote-unquote, regular or normal relationship. Am I wrong in my interpretation there? No, I think you're right. I, don't, I, I think there's every level of involvement in, the, in this kind of activity. It can be an occasional little bit of a something to spice up what is otherwise a conventional kind of sexual encounter, whether it's a, you know, a, a, a playful spanking or something like that or a little bit of you know, light bondage with scarves or whatever, all the way to, you know, 24-7 full power exchange kinds of, you know, um, master, mistress, and slave kind of relationships. Some people, it seems to be, and I've, I've been looking for years to try and figure out what the key to this is, and I suspect it may be partially genetic. Some people are really wired for this kind of sexuality, and when they meet each other, uh, you, not much explaining is necessary, a few words, and you just know. 
And then there are a number of other people for whom it's an interest and something they'd like to explore, but it's not going to be the primary focus of their sexual identities. I think all these things, every place along the spectrum, as long as it's practiced ethically between consenting adults, is perfectly, is perfectly right where it belongs. Everybody has to make their own kind of kink. Interesting. Interesting. So basically each, each person in each set of partners basically customizes from a buffet of options to make it what's right for the two of them. Exactly, and it's a tremendous buffet of options. And uh, another, th- another common misconception is that BDSM is mostly about pain. If someone experiences something as pain, probably if their pro- body is processing it that way and their brain is processing it that, it that way, it probably isn't being done right. Um, it should be uh, an experience of intense stimulation, which uh, combines elements of uh, you know, pleasure and anxiety and some physical stress and some measure also of physical affection and, and regular intimacy. One of the questions that I get every so often and that leaves me just scratching my head is, so do you people who are into this thing, do you ever actually have, you know, sex? No, afterwards we all just uh, sort of put our clothes on, shake hands, and go our separate ways. No, actually this is an elaborated form of a, a sort of a mating dance and a process of negotiation and then very prolonged, sophisticated, complex foreplay that ultimately leads up to sex acts that are pretty familiar to everybody else, too. You just, you just, you just take a different journey to get there. Right. And in the process of getting there, it's much more process-oriented than a lot of other kinds of, of sexual expression because the processes involved require a certain amount of concentration, and they are the essence of what, what sets it apart and what makes it fascinating endlessly to do. There's always some new thing to discover. There's a lot of technical knowledge that one can, can acquire in, in pursuing this particular exploration, and it never ends. People come up with new ideas and new things. Um, I'm happy to say after, oh, geez, close to 40 years of doing this in my personal life, that um, I still have the I still have the power to be amazed. That's good. I still yeah, see I, I, things that really surprise me. I, to give you an example, we met a lovely English couple not long ago who are very very interested in Japanese style rope bondage. That is the thing that turns them on, and that is the thing that they do together as a couple superbly well. And uh, they showed us a, a little performance reel they did at an event. And it was the most lyrical, beautiful, fascinating thing I think I've ever seen. And I've watched a lot of bondage being done. But this guy is very, very good, and his partner is very into it. She gets into a kind of dreamy space when he's doing it. And using nothing but, but rope, um, he kept her off the ground in a whole bunch of different positions for about 20 minutes, during which time she just got happier and happier and happier. And at no point, it was all done in midair, at no point did they ever have to get down on the stage and re-rig everything. They just did it all flowing from one thing to another. As I I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, I wonder what level of practice goes into being able to do that. That is not any, that's that's what you'd call a, a black diamond slope. It's not for amateurs. 
but there are people whose, whose, whose activities are that complex, that sophisticated, and that specific. But I don't think that's the majority of, uh, of people who engage in, in some kind of, uh, power, of sexual power play. I think a lot of it, is, for most people, is a, simply a psychological thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. Where there's a decision that one partner should be the one who, who makes the decisions about how a sexual encounter is going to go, and the other partner within the limits that have already been negotiated, which is absolutely critical to this kind of sex, uh, just basically falls in with that program and enjoys being pleasing in that program, enjoys pleasing the other person in that program, and receives pleasure in return in that program. That's kind of the way it's meant to work. And I think it does work that way quite often if the negotiation is good. You know, one of the questions that, that, that uh, I remember from, from the questionnaire that I answered for you um, has to do with uh, what it is that people who are involved in, in BDSM sexuality might have to offer to people who are not. And uh, one thing I would say that uh, is a, a plus to any relationship is the ability, ability to relate detailed information about what you really like and what you really don't like. Our way of life requires that for reasons of safety and everything else. Um, but I think anyone, any couple who are thinking of becoming intimate could benefit from the very direct way in which we communicate our fantasies, our desires, our needs, our limits, these things are required for us, but they're, they're optional for others, but that's an option they'd be wise to exercise. You know, it's interesting. I, I actually have been confounded by why people were so intrigued with, with that, that other <clears throat> book, you know, that the, I don't think anyone oh, the of us Oh, the book we call Valdemort? <laughs> that, that book that shall not be named, you know, that, that sold millions of copies and they're making it into a movie, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah, oh, I, that I one. I, I think I'm actually starting to understand. I think she did a lousy job with the book, but I think I'm beginning to understand why the public is interested. I'm thinking, first, women were probably interested in the fact that the man spent so much time focusing on her and what she wanted and what she needed. That's probably right. a novel idea for a lot of people. Um, the, the fact that the couple, couple got to know each other on such a, um intimate and detailed level in addition mm -hmm. to just having having intercourse and it, it just it, it probably presented a relationship in a specter that a lot of people just hadn't thought of and the fact well, that, that all this other yeah, stuff it, was involved it, it, with it I think captured their attention because it's unusual but but I think it's, it, it could be a lot of the relationship based stuff is what captured their attention Oh, I think that's the main appeal. I think its main appeal is as a romance novel. I think that the uh, that the the uh, kinky factor in it is sort of a MacGuffin, as it will. It's sort of the thing that sets this particular relationship apart from others. Is that 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 element becomes the complication, which is part of my my objection right. to that book because it's not. One thing you'll find that uh, kinky people and gay people have in common is that they'll often say. You know, I don't know why they make such a big deal of it because my sex life is the one part of my life where I really don't have a lot of issues. And uh, I think for those for whom it's orientational in the way it was for me and the way it is, I think, for a lot of people who have various kinds of, of gender fluidity, 
it's just the way you are, and after you've accepted it and learned to practice it with others who are like-minded within you know, certain boundaries that you can all agree on, then it's really not a source of, it's not the source of your distress, nor is it an expression of distress. And above all, what it isn't is it isn't DIY psychotherapy for childhood trauma, which is what I hated the most about those books. <laughs> You know, the, the conception that the only reason a person becomes a, becomes a dominant man or woman is to work out, you know, childhood abuse issues, well, they could spend their money a better way because it's not, it's not going to do that. And, in fact, I don't think it has much to do with anything. I think very, very few people who have had that kind of background find this kind of sexuality terribly attractive. There are some who do, but for obvious reasons, if your early associations with with power are on the downside of the curve and not pleasant, you probably won't seek that out in later life. Most of the BDSM people I know, including a great many of them who identify as submissive, um, also are very strong-minded, assertive personalities in every other part of their lives. If you took a room full of people and half of them were, were what we call vanilla, not meaning that in any way derogatorily, just you know, more standard... <laughs> Um, and people who were kinky, and they were dressed normally, and the conversation was not about sex, you would not have a clue which ones were which. Right. Very true. Because it's it's really about one particular aspect of your nature. One of the things I didn't like, another thing I didn't like about those books was how globalized it was. Now, I could be said of having done the same thing with my book, but... I set it up as a situ- in a situation where the characters, again, you know, borrowing a little bit off the original here, really were principally focused on that in their lives. I mean, they they had uh, they were you know fetishistically obsessed with it. They are fetishistically obsessed with it, which makes for great drama, and I think you know it makes for a lot of fun when you can do it. But uh, in you know in your real life, you kind of have to balance the, what is possible to to do and still have a family life and a job and all that kind of thing, and how deeply you can pursue this. Very true. Boy, I just learned all kinds of cool things from you today. <laughs> so, well, I'm doing my best here. <laughs> well, like I said, well, that's that's why I like to I, I like to find a topic and and a person that I really want to talk to because I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn and the audience is going to learn, so this, it's, it's all good. Now, okay. now. Thank you. Back to the book. Mm-hmm. I have read, and, and like I said, I, I read the press release and several other things, looked over the website and all this, and I was fascinated because I, I'm real big on finding the right setting for, for mm-hmm. a novel. You've got to have it. I mean, I had, I had a story idea for years and years and years, and until I went to Gloucester, Massachusetts, I never figured out where it needed to be. I'm like, I can't right. write this. I don't know where to put it, you know. So, but it was funny because we, we drove into Gloucester, and I, and I had this feeling like I'd come home. And then mm-hmm. I got to think about it later. I'm like, ah, this is where she lives. <laughs> you know, so there you go. So I I really liked, and I can't think of any other reason I felt like I was coming home, but but that that worked. So well, one I thing really, about this, the, about Master of O, is that there's a, there's a a character in it in addition who's not listed in the cast. That and that character is the city of Los Angeles. Exactly. Which, 
which is a, a, a terrific, you know, you know this, is, this is the great Petri dish in which we grow social experimentation of all kinds out here. Yes, people come true. from everywhere to reinvent themselves. I think I'm probably part of that, that group of people who came out here because there is a broadly tolerant social atmosphere and all kinds of activity, all kinds of people with all kinds of interests. It's really a good place to find yourself, and it's a good place to make yourself. That's what most people are out here to do. I mean, most of them want to do it in the entertainment business, which I don't recommend, but <laughs> because there, you know, if the character you invent for yourself isn't what they want, then it's going to be very frustrating. Here, it's more a matter of inventing the kind of character that you want to be, the life that you want to live. But it has that about it. It also has, uh, you know, a, a, a light and a dark side um, that's been a subject of fiction for decades, and it bears some resemblance. I, this I, I came to know after living here for a while to the odd post-war Parisian atmosphere of Story of O. That too was a time and place of reinvention. Um, they'd had some pretty rough years over there in the preceding decade or so, and uh, afterwards there was a, some desire to, you know. Put it, to draw a line under what had come before and start something new. And, and indeed, France during that period became the period of new wave film and existentialist literature and all kinds of and, you know, modern fashion. It became kind of a, a center of popular culture, which is a good place for reinvention. And if that doesn't describe Los Angeles, I don't know what does. <laughs> this is true. Definitely. So now the characters... In, in Master of O, seem to live in this very luxurious world that, that almost seems to have um, a sexuality within it. Did, did you do that on purpose, or am I misreading what I've read so far? Oh, you're right there. Um, okay. One of the one offshoot of the broader kind of uh, kink world certainly is fetishism, uh, which has to do with the sexualized perception of certain objects and certain behaviors. And, of course, that in a consumer culture is a very natural fit. Uh, obviously, uh, this, is, this is a culture that depends on consumption to a great extent and that sells people an idea of what's sexy based on, of course, what they can sell to them. But nevertheless, there is a, it, it's, it's a natural environment for examining the, the, uh, the uh, commodification of, of the erotic and the erotica of commodities. I mean, we've got them both. And in fact, I, I was unsparing in depicting the interaction between the two. Let me say that the characters in Master of O represent a fairly thin slice of the overall kink community, but that slice does exist here. Um, they're able to act out their fantasies in great detail and in great luxury. And, of course, I think people like to read about that. It's, it's like to read that kind of life. It's a bit, of, it's a bit escapist in that way. This is uh, not going to be the kind of elaborate, wonderfully luxurious, detailed kind of life that these people live for most people. But it is, nonetheless, the way that they live that life, which is to live it big and live it grandly, is a good way of portraying it in broad strokes. Makes sense. So how, um, I have a feeling just from, from what I've heard, because I, I refuse to read that, that, you know, that set of books that we will not name. Uh, I just, I, I've heard so many negative things about the, the writing itself that as an author, that bugs me. But then it, it seems like she's also got quite a few of the uh, <clears throat> quote-unquote facts wrong about, because I, I don't want to read something I'm going to, 
learn inaccuracies about something. So I, I have a feeling that the, the Kingster community probably doesn't look real fondly on, on what she did. But how how has Master of O been received by people who actually understand the, the lifestyle in the community? Well, uh, so far, of course, I, I suppose that those who don't like it probably wouldn't tell me. Um, <laughs> I, my, I like to think my friends are honest, are honest people, but I don't know how far that goes. But so far, the people that I've, who have read it within our community, and if you read some of the blurbs that go with it, I think you'll see that, see that it's a, you know, it, it is an affectionate and uh, basically positive portrayal of the lifestyle overall with characters who have all the quirks and, and deficits and strengths of regular people, which is exactly what we otherwise are. And uh, so far, I think it's, it, it's what, I, what I'm reading that's really gratifying to read in the comments is, yup, this feels like the real thing. Well, I should hope so, because I've been doing it for 40 years, and if I haven't been paying attention well enough to, to depict it accurately, I really must have missed something during that time. But, uh, yes, I think the reaction so far has been largely positive. I think the extent to which we blew it up on steroids, you know, I mean, the the extent to which we made it a a big, dark, noirish, glamorous story about a certain elite class of of Hollywood, you know, of a Hollywood-type, well, not so much Hollywood-type, but Los Angeles-type players, um, is is that's part of the entertainment value of it. There's some fantasy wish fulfillment in there, to be sure. Well, I think you need to give them that. <laughs> if, if you're going to do it, you've got to enjoy it, right? Right. And there's the, you know, if you have the right to – the nice thing about writing fiction is you get to build your own world. Yes. So I, I wanted to build the, a world uh, for the, in which to, to address these issues and in which to tell a good, a good whopping yarn and not to mention put in lots of good hot sex uh, that, would, uh, that, would be, that would form a – deluxe background for it and make it more attractive. No question about it. It's the, these people lead kind of fabulous lives, and a couple of the people I know are sort of part of that world, and they've read it, and I particularly liked it when, uh, when one of them, who really is you know, very much sought after in those, in those echelons, said to me, you know, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> it feels familiar. And that's, of course, the best compliment that you could get from uh, those who are part of the world you're writing about. Exactly. I, I love that kind of – well, and, and I, even, even my settings for, for my novels, I, I do a lot of research, and I do a lot of research about the, the history of the area, the people, that kind of thing, which actually sparked a lot of other books. You know, but, because I, I want people from that area to, while I'm taking some liberties – to make the story work, I want them to feel like I've been honest to the place, you know, to the right. place, to the people, that kind of thing. I don't want them going, what did you do? You know, because <laughs> I write about right. places that, I like It's not like that do. at all. Well, <laughs> exactly. I, I, well, I think that had something to do with it. And also, frankly, because, of the, you know, there are, some ba- there are some not altogether things that come with coming out of the closet about this kind of sexuality, just like any other nonconformist sexuality. And uh, I, I feel that uh, that risk has certain rewards. Um, there, it, has certain, it has certain penalties, too. I'm unlikely to get a security clearance for government work, but uh, I'm not seeking that. I was so going to say you're not worried about, about that, that though, but, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, they're not looking for me. 
But uh, and there are certain other jobs where they're definitely not looking for me. But on the other hand, uh, because I've been visible in this community for so long, I've just gotten to know so many different kinds of kinky people. I've gotten to see all gotten to see windows into all kinds of lives, including the kinds of lives that the characters in Master of O live, which are really kind of rarefied. I mean, one of them is a, O herself is a, an accomplished and successful fa- photographer of both fashion and erotica, but she comes from a very wealthy background, and it's really pretty much of a hobby. And uh, the two guys have, you know, have, have, have troubled personal histories, but both have found a, a, quite a measure of success. Um, and therefore, they're able to indulge the things that they like to do in the most indulgent manner. So as one, in one sense, I would call it, you know, I'd like to think, very effective sex porn, but it's also good consumer porn. At one point, uh, Nina compared it to, like, uh, watching the Food Channel for sex, you know? <laughs> there you go. All right. It's like, wow, I don't know if I'd ever really want to spend that much time in the kitchen cooking that up, but, boy, it sure does look tasty. Yeah. And that's kind. Of, that, that's kind of the, the, the. I wanted to put it in that world. I wanted to give it a, a. I wanted to make it a big story, and so it's full of big people living big lives. If you're gonna go, go big, right? Right. At um, 900 pages, we, you gotta go big. And you know that. There you go. You gotta. We talked about and exchanged some messages about the the historic context between post-war France for for the story of O and LA for. Uh, Master Vo, I want to make sure because we're we're almost actually almost running out of time. I want to wow. make sure have we covered everything within that specter because I know it's important for the story and I know it's important for you in, in putting it together. So I want to focus. Is there anything else on that topic that you want to bring out? Well, just that in, in an atmosphere where self invention is, if not the norm, certainly a common thing and an accepted thing. Um, which is, as I said, the, the sort of the parallel between these two eras and these two cities, it really provides you with a, a terrific surrounding for exploring exotic ways of life and exotic uh, activities from exotic people that you wouldn't under any other circumstances. So, indeed, you know, history does, uh, you know, it, it does intrude. Some people argue that the original novel is just a fairy tale and it stands outside of its time, but if you know anything about the history of, uh, of the circumstances in which it was written, that's not true at all. Very much the, the, the author was very much a product of her time, and in many ways she's commenting on that um, somewhat acerbically. One big difference between us is that I like my characters. I don't think she likes hers very much. <laughs> But uh, you really, if you, if you read the book all the way through, even oh, by the end of the book, you're beginning to, you know, you, your sympathies have been engaged by her at the beginning, but by the end of it, you're wondering why. And I think that's that's a little bit unfair to uh, all of us. I mean, like everyone else, every other sort of milieu, we have our we have our better people and our worst people. It always happens, especially now that it's gotten to be so huge. But uh, which was unimaginable to me, you know, 30 years ago when you could fit every kinky person in Los Angeles in one room. Now you'd need a really big room. Um, I, I think that I think it's it's important to recognize that we have a moment of historic opportunity here. Um, I think we, if we owe that writer who shall not be named uh, a debt of gratitude for anything, it's at least opening a dialogue on the subject broadly in society, but now it's going to be up to people to sort out for themselves what, it's, what the experience is really like. Until you've seen the experience and had the experience, 
Um, the best you can hope for is the best that I could describe it from the inside out. One thing I really did want to do in Master of O for sure was to describe what it's like to be in the dominant headspace while you're doing this because there's a lot of talk among submissives and people who, who are engaged with them about this thing they call subspace, which is that kind of euphoric condition that you get into from the powerful mixed stimulation of this kind of, of, of erotic power play. But that is not a thing that dominant people don't experience too. They too get into a space. They too, you know, they, ha- they have to be very focused and very concentrated because there are safety issues involved and there is the issue of, of alchemy, sort of, of transmuting what might be under other circumstances an unpleasant experience into something that's an ecstatic experience. And it takes, a, to do this well, it takes not only practice and technique, I think it takes a certain mindset. You can learn the practice and the technique. You can learn how to do rope. You can learn how to throw a whip. You can learn how to do all kinds of things. But you can't learn to have that emotional vulnerability as a dominant that enables you to be your bad self because, believe me, that's what your partner wants. They wouldn't be with you if they didn't want to see the real you. And it's, it's difficult for that to come out because, you know, like any other sexual minority, dominant people, uh, just like submissive people, have, you know, social issues around what they do and they have some leftover shame from their upbringing and from the, what society tells them they ought to want. And it's not easy for either partner to say, okay, I'm going to set that aside and with a consenting partner who shares my enthusiasms, I'm going to let that come out. It, you know, I, I think one of the things, too, is, <laughs> There's a lot of things that I talk about that say this is this is not for the faint of heart, and, and the thing is, you you've got to face so many things within yourself, within you know basic society. When when you're not around other people in the community, you've got to face certain things with your partner. So it would seem that, that this is not a choice for the faint of heart. You've got to really want it and be able to put the effort into well, able and willing to put the effort into doing it and doing it right. Well, it depends also on how far you intend to pursue it. As I said, if it's a matter of, you know, the occasional spanking and a little bit of role-playing, that does not require that you, de- that you dive into the deep end of the pool right away. You can splash sure. around in the shallow end for an entire lifetime and be perfectly happy there. But there are some of us who, it seems to me, are just, you know, bor- born to dive deep in this, and uh, that's what we do, and we, you know, we learn how... Intricately, the human nervous system is wired to process all kinds of sensations. One of the things I like to say is that, you know, the, the, what makes this safe is that it is pre-negotiated and it does have limits and that the same sensations under other circumstances wouldn't be pleasant. Um, the, it, it's like a roller coaster, you know. The sensation of being on a roller coaster is kind of scary, but it runs on tracks and most of the time everybody gets off them okay. Now, that same sensation on an off-ramp from the 101 freeway, no, you don't want that at all. So context is tremendously important for these things. You know, it has to be in a situation where you feel safe and where the limits are known and they will be observed, they will be honored. And within those limits, then it's a question of how far people are willing to go. And one of the things that surprises me is that once people start to feel safe, they become quite daring. You know, oftentimes I'm surprised, this is an experience common to absolutely every dominant person, male or female, is at the end of what you thought 
was probably a pretty challenging session for that person that may have involved stringent bondage or powerful impact play or something else, and they clearly enjoyed it. They had they experienced all kinds of orgasmic ecstasies in the process and so on and so forth. And then after all that, they say, you know, you could have been meaner. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, at, at that point, I'm just I'm, I'm kind of you know surprised when that happens, and I make adjustments accordingly. I like to say that I'm really a product of all the submissive partners I've had. I've learned yes. stuff from every one of them. Very true. You know, because they've had experiences with others and said, "Hey, have you ever tried this?" And I and you know I hear about it and I think I really haven't tried it, but it sounds kind of interesting. Well, last time I did it, it was like this, and here's how it works. There is the, that's why I say face-to-face contact is where it's at because that's where you find out about people's other experiences and how you can integrate that into a new relationship with that person. Right. Very true. Like I said, a lot of I, – I see a whole new book coming up that's the inner workings of the kink lifestyle and how it can improve anyone's relationship. I, I think that's next. Well, that's great, and I, I really applaud that mission. I think there are uh, – let, let me not sugarcoat some aspects of this. Since this community has experienced such explosive growth over the last decade or so, um, unfortunately, I think we've lost some of the tradition of, of mentoring and vetting that went into making this a safe community. If you go out there looking for people like that guy in those books – you're likely right. to run into some guys you really probably don't want to know. So I, I always suggest that people become, who are really interested in this become involved in community organizations and go to events and watch people actually do it and interact with them and get them to, to, to discuss what they do before you try it yourself and find that you, know, what, you didn't make the right initial selection. So I'd say it's a thing to be entered into enthusiastically if you're interested into it in, in it and optimistically but with your eyes open right right very true and, and make sure that if you're learning from someone the person knows what's really knows the truth of the situation you know well after all this practice I like to think I know something about it I mean I really did <laughs> That's true. I, I, I really did start early and I it really you know what it's been a primary sexual orientation through my entire life I've had one one vanilla relationship in that life and it didn't go very well and after that I said you know it really doesn't work for me that's never going to work um, so I really need to find people who have who share this this passion and you know, one way or another and that by the way doesn't always guarantee that everything is going to work because sometimes your fantasy life works great together and your real life doesn't work so there are always hits and misses in this but um, I have to say, I think it's been, uh, you know, a wonderful, fulfilling thing in my life. It's very much a part of my marriage. Um, you know, my wife is an enthusiast as well, and we know a lot of other people who are. And uh, really, it's, you know, it's, it's gratifying to be part of that community and to keep learning and keep finding out new things, new ways to have fun. Because really, honest to goodness, you know, the, the takeaway I would leave is that BDSM is not about suffering, misery, and pain for the sake of romance or any other reason. It's about fine-tuning sensation to produce extra pleasure. It's really about pleasure. And one thing I really did do in the book, very consciously, was to center it on the pleasures of this life rather than the drawbacks to it. Because we've had plenty of the other. 
and it was time to see why, you know, given what we've been propagandized to believe about BDSM and kink sex and power exchange, why would anyone want to do it? Well, if you read this book, you may get an idea. That's good. What is the biggest one or two things, and you sort of answered it, but I just want to just, for wrapping up, sake. Okay. What are the one or two things that you really, really want people to take away from reading your book? Well, in the narrowest sense, I want them to understand something about the humanity of dominant partners, that, there is, you know, that they too are people. They are not a product of someone's imagination. They, are, they have all the complexities and all the virtues and vices of everybody else. They're just as regular as can be in that way. But you know, there, there is no one type of them. There are many different types, and I wanted the world to see how things look through the eyes of one particular type of dominant person so we know something about them because there really is no literature for them. And in the greater sense, I wanted people to see what's involved in a powerful, intense, romantic BDSM power exchange relationship where the partners are, really are true equals and they have entered into this as true equals, equally knowledgeable, equally passionate, equally committed, and how in one way and another they use that as a, as a method of structuring their relationship to the liking of both. That's really what it's about. Awesome. Okay, so if people want to get in touch with you and find out more about Master of O, where do they need to go? Well, um, of course, what they need to do is go right to masterofo.com and buy a copy right away. And then when they want to talk to me about it, um, I, as, at this point, have not established a regular blog about it. I'm, I'm waiting for more of it to get out there. But in the meanwhile, there's a very large kink-oriented uh, social, social networking uh, um, site called FetLife. And uh, there's a group on there for Master of O, and there's a group on there for Ernest Green. And uh, I can be engaged there uh, you know, publicly through those groups, or I can be sent a private message there. And I do try to respond to them because one of the things I've enjoyed doing is mentoring people in this lifestyle, and I continue to try to do that. So I am, and also, you know, I'm the, public, I'm the editor of a, a magazine about the kink, kink sex and all its variations called Taboo, and I can always be uh, written to and emailed uh, through uh, Taboo Magazine at LFB.com. I think we've given people some things to think about and uh, <clears throat> reasons why they need to read this, especially if they've read those other unnamed books, yep. <laughs> to get a more clear picture. I thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show. And, and just to let the listeners know, just a little tease, we have talked about doing another show. Um, so we, we've got lots of other things to talk about. We will, we will do that in the near future. I'm very glad that people were here with us today. And I will see you next time on Ready for Love Radio.